Chase the Brat. There's a lot in three minutes, I'll tell you that. Wow, a lot of information. And I think we may have to revisit some of that information as we get into the sermon this morning. Thinking about another big issue in our world, uh, perhaps one of the very biggest, and uh, maybe something that has had direct impact in your life already. So let's begin with prayer. Father, I thank you for this time to go into your word together. You have spoken so clearly. You have revealed so much to us that we need. And we pray, Lord, that today you would be on our hearts and uh, open our minds, uh, that we may be able to receive whatever you want us to receive today. Uh, we open our spirits to you, that uh, you would speak to us, and that we would not uh, come in with a bunch of biases and, and preconceived notions today, but that we would be open to you. Help me, Lord, that whatever words I say, you will translate to every heart, uh, maybe in many ways in spite of me. Let's count on that today, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Children are enamored with dinosaurs, aren't they? Whose children don't like dinosaurs? Fascinating creatures to study, explore. The stories about how they lived and died are the stuff that movies are made of today. At least two kids' television shows that I know of, because of their granddaughters, feature dinosaurs prominently. It seems as if they're still living today. If you go to Dinosaur Dan's neighborhood, or if you get on the dinosaur train. Uh, this, this is popular stuff. And dinosaurs are often a child's introduction to science in our culture today. In a culture where our schools and perhaps the majority of our citizens have embraced the theory of evolution as the most plausible explanation of how we got where we are. So what are we supposed to believe? What are we supposed to teach our children? How are we to guide them in a world where science rules, where science is king. We owe a lot to science. Matthew Slick of the Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry said this, Science has shaped our lives dramatically. Because of science, we now have great medical information and knowledge. We can travel in jets, automobiles, trains over great distances. We can harness rivers, predict storms, and use the power of the storm. And the power of the atom, sorry, that's what he said. By picking up a phone, we can talk to almost anyone in the world. And we can see anywhere on the planet via television, and even gaze upon the surface of the moon and Mars. Like a giant floodgate that has been opened, what is flowing through its doors is a wonderful technology of helps, advancements, relaxation, amusements, security, answered questions, and hope. No longer must we till the land with our hands, pray for life-giving rain to water our crops, be subject to the whims of nature, and be helpless during times of sickness. In fact, science has become, he said, for many, a new God. So I have some questions for this morning. Are science and Christian faith in conflict? Do they need to be? Do we have to make a choice between them? And here's my answers. Yes, no, and no. Okay, we're done. <laughs> no, we're not done. <laughs> because there's a lot to this. And those are not easy answers to give. My point is, there are no easy answers here. There are some plain things, some simple things to know, but there's a lot of information you just need to get your hands on and get your mind around. 
Seriously, I want to ask this question. Should there be conflict between science and faith? Between faith and science? Well, not if we're talking about pure science. Not if we're talking about science without bias. There should be no conflict between faith and science if we're talking about following scientific rules and and principles for the observation and and research that, that scientists do with an open mind. There should be no conflict because there's no truth out there that we need to be worried about. (laughs) You find truth, and it's the truth, then it's God's truth. So why should there be a problem? We need never be afraid of truth. Truth can only lead to God. Jesus said, in fact, I am the way, the truth, and the life, didn't he? Jesus said, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. There's nothing to be afraid of here. Man may abuse that truth or misinterpret that truth, and he often does, but there is nothing to fear in truth itself. So I repeat the question, should there be conflict between faith and science? In one way, no. But the reality is, in our world, as it presently is established and runs, Christian faith and science are in tremendous conflict. And the reason is, they have opposing worldviews. The whole approach, the whole uh, way of looking at things is so dramatically different. Do you remember when we talked about worldviews? A worldview is the lens through which we look at our world, through which we see the world and how it works. It is our filter with which we analyze and and interpret and understand whatever we hear and see and, and experience. And one worldview is out there, which we could call, not science, but scientific naturalism. It's a, it's a branch or a development of science called scientific naturalism. And it says that the only truth that we could ever find is the truth that can be proven by empirical science, by following the evidence. That's the only way you can know truth in that worldview. But there is another worldview that is represented here today, and it's called Christian faith or Christianity. And it says that truth can be found in that way, but also in other ways, in many other ways. And Christianity says that God has revealed truth to us so that we uh, can discover truth that way that we would never have discovered on our own. We would never come to some of the truth that God would by by going to a laboratory and doing experiments and, and researching our world and trying to discover it on our own. Some of it had to be by revelation. And there is a big, big difference between these two worldviews. And that's why there is conflict. Now, as we begin this message today, I also want to give you one other little heads up that underneath the surface, beneath Uh, what you may see in the news or what you may hear and what you may hear in the classroom or anywhere else, there is a struggle, a battle behind the battle. And it's a struggle beneath the surface between faith and science. It is a personal struggle, and I would call it the struggle of our will. It's the struggle of whether we can be accountable to God or not. You know, and if, if there is this, this bristling, if there's this stiff-necked approach that says, there is no God, there will never be God, I don't want to answer to God, then, then that battle, you know, is, is going to go a certain way. But if there is an open spirit, if there is a willingness, is there a humility to say, there may be a God, 
There may be something I need to discover that I don't know about yet. There may be someone behind all this that I'm looking at. Then it turns out differently for that person. So I want you to know something that, that as we talk about science ruling, just establish it right off the bat, that as Christians we have room for only one king. His name's Jesus. And, and it determines that, that allegiance, that loyalty to Jesus as our only king determines our approach. So we can't make science our king as much as we appreciate what science can do. And we have no fear for its discoveries or, or from the truth that it may uncover. But science is not king. Science is not rule. It's only a tool that we can use for discovering truth, but it could never be something that rules our lives. Now, since no one could possibly share everything you need to get in the next 30 minutes, no one could do that. Yeah, I could... I couldn't do it, but somebody could spend a whole week, you know, talking about all this stuff, and then we would still not be at the end of it. I want to just give you some tools. So if you have a piece of paper, some of you guys have some paper to pass around here. Sorry, Dave, I should have got you started on that earlier. If you need some paper, just quickly throw those sheets out there. Some of them are on this side too, Dave. If you have somebody head out that way. Here's some tools that you could use. Here's a, a good one that I was told about by a couple people in the church. Catherine and Mitch, thank you. If you have an iPhone, Answers in Genesis is an app that you can get. If you have an Android phone or tablet, uh, that's also iPad at the top, get Answers 1 point or 1 colon 1 or Creation Science Update. There's also another app called Creation Answers. I'll just leave that up there for a minute, Adam. Uh, and these are all apps that you could get which will give you a wealth of information if you want to explore these things further. So there's a good starting point. Also, of all the books... You know, you could recommend hundreds of books, I'm sure. Uh, one that has really had a, a great impact on me because he really consolidates a lot of information is a fairly new book called God's Not Dead by Rice Brooks. And uh, some of you saw a movie that kind of spun off of this, this, uh, this uh, effort that he made. But for about 20 years, he's tried to be a Christian apologist and, and has been, you know, tooling himself uh, uh, and uh, researching and, and having discussions and debates and that kind of thing. So he knows a lot more about this than I do. Maybe, maybe not the perfect guy for this, but there's a good starting point for you. And he uh, quotes a lot of different people and may lead to other things if you look at the footnotes and find out some of the things he says there. So these are resources, tools to just give you. Now, do we have to make a choice between faith and science? No. Do you have to make a choice between scientific naturalism and Christianity as our worldview? Yes. <laughs> Got to make that choice. But not to reject science. Scientific naturalism, which we'll explain in a minute, says that we came about by chance and by unguided natural selection. And by definition, it leaves no room for God because there was no guidance. There was no intelligence behind it, according to this worldview. But Christianity is based on the word of God, on God's revelation, on of himself, of his will. And the word of God helps us interpret and understand what we may discover by empirical science or by any other means of discovery. Uh, so it is revelation, but also a way to interpret what we see. It is God's wisdom added to the equation, which we could never have without it. Now, it's obvious that as Christians, we need to get better equipped than we are. We need to get educated. Scientific naturalism already has the upper hand in our culture. So we need 
to, to step up. We need to catch up. And we need to understand science and what it can and cannot do. And that's what I'm going to try and do in a few minutes here. Two passages of scripture inform and equip us this morning. Mike referred to the one of them, uh, started it in Romans 1 during communion meditation, but let's read this whole passage. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godliness, godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may, may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. This is why 90% of the people in the world worship a God. They have a false idea of who God is, but they know there is a God. They're going to worship somebody because they see nature around them. Verse 21, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise... They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. This is what we read a couple weeks ago. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. So this is a key passage of revelation from God. God says, there's the truth. I'm going to lay it out there for you. You would have taken a long time to figure this out, maybe never would have, but part of it, everyone can figure out. This passage says that God made his existence plain to everyone. Even his invisible qualities can be seen. If you look, if you open yourself up to that, these qualities of eternal power and divine nature have been clearly visible to those who look. And since they can be clearly seen, and people are without excuse when they deny his existence. They may claim to be wise, but in this respect at least, they are foolish. They have exchanged the truth about God for a lie, a very comfortable lie, because then you don't have God to answer to. Now let's go back to a passage that supports this. It's in Psalm 19. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day and day, day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. This is another good passage. It reveals that the universe itself declares the glory of God. It proclaims God's existence, the workings of his creative hands, even though the creation can't speak. It has no words. It does speak, doesn't it? And it brings praise to God. The skies pour forth the revelation that God has created the universe. Now, pure science, science without bias, we'll call it, shows a creator behind the creation. God reveals that. God says, if you look, you will see me. If you research, if you experiment, if you explore... You will see me. There will, you will see a designer behind the design. You won't know that much about him except that he made things. He made wonderful things, marvelous things, awesome things that, that you could never, never imagine. And science should lead scientists to the conviction that the Bible is accurate in how it describes how life began and how this world works. There's a lot more to it than just creation. 
Well, every time we start talking about this, science and faith, we end up talking about evolution. And so we need to spend some time there this morning. Evolution is a theory. A theory first put forth by Charles Darwin, 1859. He brought out his book on the origin of the species. And Darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection suggests how species evolve or change. That's all it means. They change over time. Sometimes changing, he thought, so much that new species are created. Now, the variety you see in the living things all around you is a result of each organism's unique genes. Alicia Spooner says the theory of evolution by natural selection doesn't attempt to explain how life first began or why living things are on earth. Rather, the theory of evolution by natural selection explains the scientifically observable processes that change the physical characteristics of living things through time. Now, evolution is a fact that it occurs. But where and how? Things change. That's all that means. Species change. Sometimes for improvement. Sometimes not for improvement, but they change. That's all evolution says. The theory of evolution says that this is seen everywhere and it means things. It means where we began and why we are where we are today. And that is the theory part of it. The sad thing is that what began as a theory has permeated our schools and colleges and universities to the point that it is now the primary way many people understand the world we live in. The theory is largely accepted as fact today, even though Darwin himself called it a theory, a working theory that still needed a lot of work. That's how he looked at it. Now, he promoted it, he pushed for it, he believed in it, but he still called it a theory. But today it is called a fact. What gave this theory of evolution by natural selection so much credibility? Well, Darwin observed and recorded small examples of evolution within species that he's found on the Galapagos Islands. He spent about three years observing little finches, little birds, and noticed that their beaks were changing shape, longer or wider or whatever, according to how much food supply they had during that time. And he saw them you know, go one way and go back the other way, and they adapted. Something was doing that, and he wanted to see what that was. And he saw these little micro-examples of evolution, and we call that microevolution. From these observations and other things that he knew from the past, like the fossil record that scientists also know about, other scientific evidence in addition to that, he postulated a theory that organisms improve and become more complex given enough time. That's, that's the part. That's, that's a big leap. Not only do they adapt a little bit to their environment or change within a species, but they jump to new species, to higher species, to more uh, 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 higher levels of living and, and knowledge and brain power and, and all of that and ability. And that is where he had not seen any evidence. <laughs> there wasn't any evidence for that. There's still no evidence for that. He theorized that species could evolve into new species, and he suggested that all the creatures in the world today derive from very simple life forms that existed many millions, even billions of years ago. 
So to put it another way, and this is kind of summarized by Rice Brooks, he says evolution teaches that somehow very simple organisms down to the molecular level have gradually evolved upward and upward until eventually, here we are, human beings. We have suddenly gone, or supposedly gone, not suddenly, it, it's really slow. <laughs> we have supposedly gone from molecule to man without any guidance from an outside source. There's nobody showing this what to do. Nobody telling it. Nobody designing it. Nobody influencing it. It just happened. Natural selection, he called it. And by that, he meant a blind process that slowly selects small differences between individuals in species to outsurvive others. And over time, the beneficial differences, such as a larger size, in the case of the finches, a longer beak, get them to more food, become more dominant in a population. And these small changes are believed to accumulate over time and eventually cause a species to dramatically transform even to a new species. And as I said, nobody's witnessed that yet. But this was a projection. Not only a projection forward, but also go backward in time. Where would have this begun in order for us to not by now be humans? And that's why the dating is so long. The chronology is so long, because this takes a lot of time, if you believe this. And so they estimate the Earth is, is about 10 to 20 billion years old. That's the only way it can work, if it works at all. Okay, now there are deficiencies in the theory of evolution that we need to understand. Let me give you four, because it's just too much. <laughs> uh, I will do this as simply, as quickly as I can. The word I want to use is face, F-A-C-E. So put that down the side of your page if you're making a note. F is for fossil record. While the millions of fossils that have been found show us a great variety of creatures that have lived in the past, including dinosaurs. And dinosaurs did live. The fossil record shows no evidence of transitional forms of life, that you would go from species to species, that there would be this jump, or the, that there would be any kind of progression in between. Uh, that, that's disputed. Trying to be totally honest about this, Scientist named Philip Johnson said fossil evidence should, on the whole, support the claim that today's complex organisms evolve step by gradual step from specific common ancestors. It is generally conceded today, however, that fossil species are remarkably stable over long periods of time, and the appearance of new forms is typically abrupt. There's nothing in between. You have this guy, and then you have this guy. If he was evolving, why don't you have the guys in between? Colin Patterson, senior paleontologist at the British Museum of Natural History, has the world's largest fossil collection, 60 million fossils. He said, if I knew any transitional fossil or living example, I would certainly have included them in my book, Evolution. I will lay it on the line, Colin Patterson says. There is not one such transitional fossil for which one could make a watertight argument. And yet, kids in the classroom are taught, it's there, we just haven't found it yet. But somebody's been digging for about 150 years, a lot of someone's, and they still haven't found it. Darwin worried that the complete lack of fossil intermediates in all geological re records was perhaps the most obvious and gravest objection which could be urged against my theory. He was worried about this one. And 150 years later, 
Nobody's proven him right. It's been proven wrong on that. Letter A, eight man hoaxes. <laughs> I don't know if I would have chosen this one, but the guy that came up with the alliteration or acronym thought this was a really important one. It, it is. I just don't know much about it. You've heard about the different stages of man. You know, Nebraska man. Ever hear of Nebraska man? They found a single tooth. And from that tooth, they constructed an imaginary ape man. And, and you know, there are some serious flaws in this, in this, this way of looking at things. When when you are looking so hard to get evidence that you can conjecture to that degree, it is a violation of science's own rules and principles. And people start offering what might have happened with little or no proof. Many of us are, fa are, are familiar with, with the diagram. I don't think I got this one on there, but you know that they show the, the little chimpanzee and then you got one goes upright and one a little higher, and then you got the caveman, and then you got someone in between. Now you finally got this guy like us, looks like us. And and how many have seen that diagram? All of us. <laughs> We've seen it multiple times. It's it's like the, the poster child for the theory of evolution of natural selection, you know. We should put this up there, everybody starts believing it. That's how we started. And there are Christians I've talked to that really believe we came from monkeys. Because they have heard it their whole lifetime up to this point. And so these things are accepted as fact, but they are only some artist renderings of what the science scientists conjectured might be the case. And there's no evidence behind it, no science behind it. Now, the third letter is C. I want to give you three words for this. Chance, cell, and complexity. Chance is seen in how it all started, the Big Bang Theory. Big, big chance. Nobody knows about it. Nobody was there to witness it except God. Nobody wants to listen to God, so what can man know about it? Nothing. The things that, that are put out there as the process is, is going backward in time, and maybe this happened. Maybe by chance, lightning struck, you know, and just the right elements, and life began. Maybe by chance, something happened that we don't know about, and that must have been the beginning. It, that's not an adequate explanation. And then you talk about cells and the complexity of cells. This is a relatively new field, and but the, the, the rewards that have been uh, reaped from that field are amazing. Charles Darwin once said, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would break down. That's what he said. He knew it. He knew that was a problem, a fatal flaw. And there are some very complex cells out there. Every cell, practically. The cell of the human body uh, is an amazing thing. We're just really beginning to learn. Michael Behe, who's a biochemist at Lehigh University, some of you have heard of him, wrote a book called The Black Box. And he described that to, to Darwin, the cell was like a black box, you know, that came out of an airplane crash. And you don't have the information until you can get the black box open. And, and Darwin was looking at this cell, but really couldn't see into it the way we can see into it today. And, and we have much better equipment for that. It was a mystery, but now it is open. And inside this black box called the human cell, we have discovered 3.1 billion letters. Each cell in the human body is a high-tech factory with artificial language, decoding systems, central memory banks that store and retrieve information. In each little cell... 
These cells can do an amazing number of functions, including duplicating themselves at bewildering speeds. And Michael Behe concluded Darwin could not have been more wrong about this one. This basic unit of life is so incredibly complex that our greatest computers cannot fully understand it. This is what the little video was referring to earlier when it's talking about information. The DNA, which you've all heard that term, you know, the, the spiraling you know, ladder. The DNA is the language of life. The DNA is like an instruction manual for operating any living thing. Every cell in our body has DNA, our DNA, different than anybody else's DNA. The human genome stands, stacks up as 3.1 billion rungs on this DNA ladder. The probability of this happening by chance is staggering. Now, Rice Brooks gave an interesting example. Let's say you're, you're standing there one day and your, your phone dings that you've got a text message. You pull it up, it's from a friend, but it's totally garbled. You know what happened. They sat on their phone and they just, you know, hit a bunch of stuff and it makes no sense to you. You know exactly that this was random, this was chance. They didn't mean to send anything. But if one day from that same friend you got a message and that friend said, don't tell anyone, but I've won the lottery. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, i got to call them right away. <laughs> that is a clear message intended to be sent to you. The chances that the writer could claim that this text was typed randomly are astronomically improbable. Now, what if that sentence was now a billion letters and he got it right? That's what we have in the human cell. And that's a conservative comparison to the information in our individual personal DNA. Are you impressed? <laughs> Microbiologist Michael Denton, who is, by the way, an atheist, added, the complexity of the simplest known type of cell is so great that it is impossible to accept, accept that such an object could have been thrown together suddenly by some kind of freakish vastly improbable event. Such an occurrence, an occurrence, he said, would be indistinguishable from a miracle. <laughs> this is an atheist talking. Final letter E. Entropy. E-N-T-R-O-P-Y. The second law of thermodynamics is increased entropy, which means that things in this universe go from order to disorder and not the other way around. Now, for the theory of evolution to, of evolution to work, it has to go the other way. You have to go from this little tiny thing that knows nothing, can do nothing, and it progresses to greater and greater order, greater and greater ability. That how it is how it works. And so the second law of thermodynamics, entropy, militates against the theory of evolution. And the implications are tremendous. These are the theological implications here of this. The universe has, by just this one law, a definite beginning at which it was at its most ordered state. But since then, it has been losing order and losing or using up its available energy. Like a giant wind-up clock, as some people picture it, the universe is winding down. And this is the exact opposite of what Darwin theorized was going on. You can't go both ways. And what we have observed is that it's winding down. It's a lot of time, but when our energy is spent and used up, 
It's gone. Now, why is the theory of evolution by natural selection now taught and accepted as fact when it is, in fact, full of holes and discrepancies? I'll give you three reasons. Many more probably could be found. One is people are so impressed with modern technology that they think that that's a better way to explain things than some ancient book like the Bible. People would rather trust today's science rather than yesterday's tradition. Secondly, people see the evidence for microevolution, the little evolution within a species, and trust their teachers and professors who say, well, we haven't seen it yet, but there must also be macroevolution, species going to another species. We just haven't been able to witness that. We haven't found a case of that, but certainly that is the case, and they believe that. Third reason, some people accept science's way of explaining the origin of the universe and of their species because it leaves no room for God. And they would really like that. Let's get God out of the equation. Don't have to answer to him. I can live any way I want to. And it's really convenient. Some of them have been bold enough to say, we really like that. We don't want God. We want to live the lives we're living. And some of them will even come right out and say, because we live these sexually immoral lives, and we don't want to have anybody telling us what to do. Now, that's the truth of it, folks. I'm not making this up. Richard Dawkins You'll hear a lot of his name if you start studying this. He said some absurd things. He said this, listen closely. Biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of being designed for a purpose. Think about that. They looked like they were designed, but uh, certainly they weren't. Nobel laureate Francis Click, who first discovered DNA... He said biologists must constantly keep in mind that when they, what they see was not designed, but evolved. Remember, keep that in mind, guys, so you don't make the mistake of thinking there was somebody behind this. We were designed, we were evolved. And so these disclaimers are, are as ridiculous as they sound. Now, science has its limitations. Very quickly, ethics and morality, uh, it doesn't know what to do with that. You know, if you, if you think about these, all these... Uh, uh, things that science can show us. It can't tell us how to live our lives. It doesn't tell us, you know, where we came from. It doesn't tell us how we're supposed to act. In fact, if you followed the selection of the fi- the survival of the fittest, there would be no morality. It'd just be who's got the bigger stick. You know, who's the stronger guy? I don't care how he acts. You know, you got to obey him because he's bigger than you. There'd be no ethics. There'd be no morality. Science can't Address reason. How did we get the ability to reason? How did we get the ability to think abstractly, to learn languages, to know the difference between right and wrong? None of that would have come if we had come up from a single-cell organism to this point. And finally, science cannot answer the question, why? It can't tell us why the universe was made and why we're here. But God said all of that. He's made that clear. How do we live in a world where science rules? Well, let's be honest, most of us are unprepared, and we can be taken advantage of. We can be ridiculed, we can be mocked, uh, and, and when our teacher sets up, you know, science is the end all, science is the, the way to go, you know, evolution is the right path, we're, we're uninformed and unready to answer that. So we need to step up here, we need to learn some things. And... Um, Many will try to keep that debate one-sided, not allow the dissenting opinion. If you speak up in class, uh, you, know, you put down. Don't do that. And we need to be strong enough to stand up. Things, there are some things that we can do. Let me give you a quick list and then we'll quit. 
First of all, learn to love and show respect to everyone, even if you disagree with somebody. Well, it's tough. But that's what this whole series is about. How are you going to be salt and light if you don't love people? How are you going to have influence if you don't love people? Even though you hate what they believe, you hate maybe what they do, it is anti-God what they're doing, but you love them because God does. Learn to speak the truth in love, discussing even our differences, firmly but lovingly. Uh, learn the scientific way. Some of you don't know anything about science. You need to learn what that is. And then follow that way of discovery along with others and hold the other scientists you're talking with accountable. Hey, wait a minute. That wasn't scientific. What you just did there, you know, what you just gave as your argument for something, there's no science behind that. Search for the truth wherever it can be found. You're going to find a bunch of it right here. Search the world. There's nothing to be afraid of. The truth out there. Discover what God says in the Word, and it'll help make sense of a lot of the other things because He was there. He knows. And finally, don't be intimidated. Be informed. That's a lot. I hope uh, you can go from here and you can learn some more and you can be a blessing to others uh, by the way you have discussions and conversations with them. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your, uh, your word. Thank you for the revelation that you've given to us. There's so much here that, that uh, is kind of mind-boggling to us, out of our field, out of our expertise. But all of us need to get equipped to some degree because these conversations happen. And usually we have to slink away quietly because we don't want to be mocked or we don't want to be made fun of or ridiculed. Help us, Lord, to stand for you. Help us to be the salt and light that we need to be so that we could have influence on the world instead of the world having influence on us. Through Christ. Amen. We're going to sing a song as we close about standing for God. Let's stand, please.